This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Exodus chapter 17. Uh, we have been journeying with Moses in the wilderness as he's taken the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, heading towards the promised land. And uh, I think this is part eight this morning. And so far we have read through the first 16 chapters of Exodus, and now we're in chapter 17. But let me just say that I don't intend and plan to read all 40 chapters. You'd be glad to hear that. Uh, What we are trying to do is to highlight some of the main points of Moses' life. And uh, because his life, actually, his life story is covered over in four of the first five Old Testament books, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so we will, from time to time, we will flick into one of those uh, to back up what we're saying about it in Exodus. So Exodus chapter 17 then, and reading from verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Uh, Massa means uh, tempting, Meribah means contention, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? Or not. Now, whenever you read uh, this journey of Moses with the children of Israel in the wilderness, sometimes you have to stop and just literally shake your head at the sheer ingratitude and unbelief of these people. These are the same people that God, with a mighty hand, brought out from the bondage of Egypt that they were in for centuries. And out of that bondage, uh, God brought them and he, <laughs> he <coughs> struck Egypt with 10 different plagues, one after the other, culminating in the death of all the firstborn. And they saw that and saw that in the land of Goshen where they lived, they were completely safe and protected because they killed the lamb and sprinkled the blood on the doorpost and the lambs. They saw that. That was their experience firsthand. They saw the Red Sea opening up before them that they went through on dry ground. 
They saw their enemies, the Egyptian army, lying dead upon the seashore, and they rejoiced greatly because of that. But three days later, they complained that there was no water, and God uh, caused that bitter water of Marah to be made sweet, and they tasted that and saw that. Uh, and they saw the pillar of cloud by day, and they saw the pillar of fire by night, uh, and, and, and they were crying out for, 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 for meat to eat. And God caused a great wind to blow those migrating quails away off course so that they would surround their camp and they would get all the meat that they could desire. Uh, and they, they did all that. And here they are with the very taste of that morning's manna in their very mouths. And they're saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, you can hardly believe the unbelief that we're reading here. But that's what they were like. And they were ready to stone Moses. They were so angry. I mean, this is just a, a, a weeks from, from deliverance. And now they want to stone Moses, who was their hero. And he's gone from hero to zero in their eyes, just like that. These are the people of God we're talking about here. These are the people who should have known better, but evidently didn't. And so God said, Moses says, well, what am I going to do, God? These people are about to kill me. What am I going to do? And God says, well, I want you to take that rod, the one that you struck the river of Egypt with, that turned to blood, and I want you to take it up to Horeb, and I want you to go up to that great rock there, and I want you to strike that rock, and when you strike that rock, all the water that you'll ever need will come out of it. I mean, enough water to slake the thirst of two million people out of flinty rock. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. That is supernatural <laughs> supply by God. I, I love something old, the old famous old preacher F.B. Meyer. Uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he was a great old preacher. And I love something uh, he said about this here. Uh, he said, verse 6, Thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it. He said, This is strange. A rock would be the, seem to be the last place to choose for the storage of water, but God's cupboards are in very unlikely places. Ravens bring food. The prime minister of Egypt gives corn. Cyrus releases the people of Israel from Babylon. The Jordan heals the leper. Meal makes poison pottage wholesome. Wood makes iron swim. A Samaritan binds up the wounds and saves the lives of a pillaged traveler. Joseph of Arimathea buries the sacred body in his own tomb. It is worthwhile to go to Rephidim to get an insight into the fertility and inventiveness of God's providence. There can be no lack to those who fear him and no fear of lack in those who have become acquainted with his secret storehouses. I has not seen nor ear heard the things which God has prepared for them that love him, but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. And so he strikes the rock, and great living water comes out of that rock. What a wonderful, tremendous miracle. Remember Jesus in John chapter 4, and he's down by the well of Samaria, and he meets that woman of Samaria and they have this great conversation and Jesus asks her for a drink and in John 4 verse 9 how is it you being a Jew ask a drink of me a Samaritan woman for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans and Jesus answered and said to her if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you give me a drink 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, lovely, fresh, clean water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So immediately we see that Jesus is saying, I am the source of living water. If you're going to get living water, the one that will never make you thirst again is going to come from me. In John chapter 7, in verse 37, On that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. <clears throat> now Jesus is saying, <clears throat> excuse me, I am the source of this living water, and this living water is actually the Holy Spirit, who will fill you with rivers of living water that you'll never thirst again. But the Holy Spirit has not yet been given because I've not yet been glorified. <clears throat> now the Holy Spirit here and there, even in the Old Testament, came upon men, did tremendous things, even the New Testament, but not given in the measure that Jesus is talking about here because Pentecost hasn't happened yet. And it hasn't happened yet, and the Holy Spirit hasn't been given to that measure yet because Jesus hasn't been glorified yet. And in other words, Jesus hasn't went to the cross yet. Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't been smitten yet. Jesus is the rock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul, speaking of the children of Israel going through the waters and under the cloud, he likened that to baptism they were baptized into Moses. But then he says they all drank of that same spiritual drink, that rock which was Christ, he says, 1 Corinthians 10, which was Christ. So the apostle Paul looks back at those events and sees Christ in that, sees baptism in that, sees Christ as the, as the source of living water through the Holy Spirit. And so the rock which is Christ Jesus had to be smitten, had to be struck <clears throat> before he could be glorified, before the Holy Spirit could come. What does it say then in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Moses' rod in Exodus 4.20, and even in the very chapter that we're reading, Moses' rod became known as the rod of God, the rod of God that struck the rock. Here is, in Isaiah 53, the rod of God striking Christ the rock, smitten by God and afflicted. 
Now, some people struggle with that whole concept of God striking his only son in order to forgive us our sins, but he loved us that much that the only way for sins to be forgiven if his son was smitten up the cross and died for us, and God saw to it that that's what would happen, that we would be afflicted, he would be afflicted, and God would be the rod of God that would afflict him. Isn't that wonderful? That's the gospel, you see. And the world doesn't understand that. And some Christians doesn't understand that and actually fights against that very concept. But there it is in the scriptures itself. And of course, when Jesus was glorified, when he went to that cross and he died, and then of course, in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and the river waters began to flow and has been flowing ever since, ever since. And so here we see the rock being smitten. Away over Numbers 20, which we'll not read, but away over Numbers 20, away towards the end of their journey, again there was a place where there was no water. And again they complained and they murmured and they cried against Moses. And God told him to go and speak to the rock. But Moses was so angry. He was so upset. He was so angry. Instead of just speaking to the rock, he smote the rock twice with his rod. And for that... He could not lead the people into that final lap into the promised land. You see, that rock stood for Christ. And Christ did not need to be smitten the second time. He died once for all. And in fact, it tells us that the way over in Hebrews, it tells us that very thing, that he didn't have to be smitten the second time. It tells us in verse chapter 9, verse 28 of Hebrews. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And then in chapter 10, verse 9, he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Take away the first that he may establish the second. That by, uh, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once <laughs> for all. Verse 11, every high priest, every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So that's our Lord Jesus Christ, even in type, way back in Exodus. And then on to verse 8. Here they are still in Rephidim. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Let's just stop there. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. The Amalekites were the first to attack Israel in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way, attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord our God has given you to possess as inheritance, 
that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. In other words, don't you forget that I'm telling you that you're to blot them out from all remembrance. In other words, utterly destroy them. Now, this is interesting. And I'll tell you why. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, as the, as the Jews would call it, has 613 commands. And one of those commands, strangely enough, was not to hate the Egyptians. In chapter 23, 7 of Deuteronomy, not to hate the Egyptians. In spite of all that they did against them, he says, don't hate them. But here he's telling about these Amalekites to utterly wipe them out, to destroy them, to have no remembrance of them forever. In fact, God's going to contend with them forever, he says, in a chapter we'll just see in a moment or two. Why is that? What had God got so much against the Amalekites? I'll tell you. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Now remember, Esau was a profane man. Esau and Jacob were the twin sons of Isaac. And Esau was a profane man, an irreverent man, a godless man, a man who was carnal, a man who was fleshy, a man who had no concern about the things of God, even to sell his birthright for a dish of stew. And the birthright was an important thing, not just monetary in the family, not just in the status, but actually to God it was a spiritual thing. And he was quite prepared to sell that for a mess of pottage, the Bible says. So if, if Egypt is a type of the world in the Old Testament, and it generally is, then Amalek is a type of the flesh. Amalek actually started his own tribe, his own troop of people, and that's what became known as the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a nomadic tribe around the Sinai Desert where these people are going. And notice what they did. They attacked them at the rear with the old and, and, the, and the tired and the weary and the young and the children. That's whom they attacked. They attacked at the weakest point, and the flesh will always attack at the weakest point. The flesh will attack your weakest areas. Sometimes we blame the devil for everything, and actually, a lot of the time, it's our own flesh. It's our own old nature, the carnal nature that wants to dominate our lives. But we have the Spirit of God. That shouldn't be happening, but it does happen, and it's the flesh. And how many times has the flesh got us into trouble by what we did or what we said or what we thought? And so God was against them. They attacked. Instead of letting the children of Israel through, they attacked them and they attacked their weakest members. And they killed them and slaughtered them. The tail enders, as it were, the stragglers. Just the way you see out there in the Serengeti, you see those lions and you see the, maybe the wildebeest going through. Who do they attack? They attack the weakest of the stragglers at the back or the young ones, the calves, they attack them because they're easy prey. God says, I want you to destroy them. Now, we need to follow this here for a moment or two because uh, later on in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Whenever they were in the promised land, remember God said to blot out the remembrance. But here they are, and they're still about. And, and Samuel the prophet goes to King Saul. 
And here's what he says in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel came to Saul. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the, words, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox and sheep, cattle and donkey. Completely and utterly wipe them out. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get out from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, which he shouldn't have done, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Actually, he didn't, as we'll see in a moment. He may thought he have, but he didn't. Should have, but he didn't. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone all around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord. I have performed a commandment of the Lord. No, he hadn't. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Because they were supposed to be destroyed. But Samuel said, What is the bleating of the sheep, the lowing of the oxen? And Saul said, They have brought they, they, the army, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. See now, immediately he knows he's caught on. He knows he's in disobedience, because the prophet has told him. But he's trying to blame others now. He's blaming the army. He's blaming the people. It's their fault, you see. They did this. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. In other words, shut up, not another word. Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Did you not, not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord. And if you read on, you'll see from that moment on he had lost the kingdom. And Samuel never went to see him ever again. He was finished. It was over. David would be the next king, the anointed king. And that Saul fought against him for probably 10 years and tried to keep him off the very throne that God had deposed him from. Now, this is important. Hundreds of years later, because the Amalekites were not destroyed. 
hundreds of years later, they pop up again. By the way, even before that, I should say, remember David's experience at Ziglag? You remember how Saul was hounding David, trying to kill him? And how he went to the land of the Philistines and there met with favor with the king of the Philistines and he allowed him to stay in a city called Ziglag and then how the, the Philistines were going to fight against uh, God's people and David actually was about to join them in the fight. But the, and that would have been a big, massive mistake. But the lords of the Philistines said to the king of the Philistines, no, don't let him do this because I tell you what, when the fight gets in the heat of the battle, he'll turn against us. And so they sent them home again to Ziglag. That took three days. What happened when they got to Ziglag? The Amalekites, the raiding party of the Amalekites had come and stole their wives and their children and their livestock and taken them captive, the Amalekites, that should have been destroyed by this time. But here they are, a thorn in even David's flesh, the next king. And so David pursued them and he recovered all. Hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, Again, when the people were as captives. And you remember the story of Esther, how that, that Hebrew girl uh, got married and became the wife of Ahasuerus, the great king. And how that Haman hatched a plot against the Jews and all the kingdom to destroy them, to wipe them out. He was the second major anti-Semite mentioned in Scripture. But here's what's interesting. After these things, this is Esther chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the Agagite. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And here as a relative... Here is one who's come down that same lineage and his hatred for the Jews, for God's people, knew no bounds. He wanted to destroy all of them. He shouldn't even been here. He shouldn't even been born. If Saul had done his job, if the people had got it done their job, there would have been no Agagite. There would have been no Haman to try to destroy the Jews. That's why God wanted them completely destroyed because by God's knowledge, he knew if they didn't, <laughs> that a Haman would pop up somewhere and try to destroy them. But thank God that plant and that plot was, was ruined and he never was able to do that. And so here we are on Exodus chapter 17, trying to deal with the flesh. Paul said in Romans 8, he says, mortify, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Mortify means put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because if we don't, they'll come back to bite us. If we don't, they'll wreck our lives. Our flesh will want to destroy everything that's spiritual about us. So Paul says, put it to death. If you, if you read away over in the book of Galatians chapter 5, listen, listen to what Paul says about the flesh. Verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The flesh is that old carnal nature that wants to do what's against God's word and God's will and God's ways. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary one to the other so that you do not do the things that you wish. 
But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against which there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And let's not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And so the Amalekites represent the flesh that we've got to deal with. And so, verse 8, now, Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, this is the first mention of Joshua, who is now Moses' commander-in-chief of his army. Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he lent down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. He's 81 years old now. He's entitled for his hands. Did you ever try to hold your hands out for a long time? It's hard, isn't it? If you really want it, it'd be even harder, wouldn't it? So, but Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now notice here, two things are going on. There is a, a physical battle and a spiritual battle at the same time. In our lives as believers, there's a spiritual side and a practical side. Amen. Always those two. And Moses, maybe in his younger days, because Josephus, the Jewish historian, said he was a great warrior when he was called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and, and had an attack against the Ethiopians and won a great battle. So his natural inclination would have been to, to head up that battle, but he's 80 years old now, and he's handed all of that responsibility over to Joshua, this young, younger man, obviously a lot younger man, but a man of great stature, uh, among the people and a man who was a fighter and a soldier and a commander and he handed that over to him but notice he didn't just leave it there because he knew that on itself was not enough the arm of flesh is not enough to fight our battles there's something spiritual about the battles that we fight isn't there so he went up the mountain with those two to hold up his hands, and we see there, as long as his hands is held up, then he prevails. The battle's been won in the valley, but when his hands went down, the Amalekites were prevailing, and so they sat him down, they held up his arms until the battle was fought. We need intercessors, don't we? We need people to hold 
up in prayer in the battles. And sometimes in your battle, you need people to hold your hands up and to hold your arms up in prayer because you get tired and weary in the battle, don't you? And sometimes you just need somebody to come alongside and hold up your hands and let the battle proceed. And you rest on that stone. He was resting on the stone and they held up his hands. And when they did that, God's people prevailed in the valley. Prayer is so important to win the spiritual battles of life. If Joshua, with his great ability, and with his army now, probably well-trained, even with all of that, the Amaleks were a force to be reckoned with. And notice whenever Moses' hands went down, the Amaleks were, Amalekites, I should say, were prevailing. So they were a force to be reckoned with. The enemy of our souls is a force to be reckoned with. So we need prayer. We need intercession. We need people to pray for us, and we need to be praying for others. Members of family, loved ones, friends, situations, we need to be praying uh, to get the victory. So there's fighting, and there's praying, and there's a practical side, and there's a spiritual side. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, or Jehovah Nisai. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And they did have war from generation to generation. But thank God for the victory that was won on that day. And... Uh, if I can just find this as we're about to close. I forget where I've written it. I've written it in a flyleaf somewhere. <coughs> to this very day, to this very day, among knowledgeable Jews, whenever the name Amalek is mentioned, <coughs> To them, it's like mentioning the word Nazi. There's a revulsion in them. And whenever his name would be mentioned, like Hitler's name, to a knowledgeable Jew, if Hitler's name is mentioned, they would say, may the Lord blot out all remembrance of his very name. That's how much they despise it. And it's the same with Amalek to this very day. And they have a Hebrew saying that actually says that, may his name be blotted out from our remembrance. The flesh is something that you and I constantly need to deal with. And that's why we're to walk in the spirit. If we walk in the spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But the flesh you have with you always. So you have to walk in the spirit. How do we do that? We pray. We read this book. We digest this. We talk to the Lord, and whenever we feel that flesh rising up, we say, Lord, help me. I don't want to do this or say this or be this. And it's amazing. It's amazing how quickly the flesh rises up. Isn't it? Have you ever been caught out saying something or doing something you shouldn't have said or done? I have many times because that flesh rises up and wants to negate everything that's spiritual within us. So we have to discipline ourselves and say, no, this is what God's word says. This is what I've got to do. Amen. Let's pray.
blessed be your name. Thank you, Lord. Lord, your word says that these things were written for our example. In the very days that we live, Lord, we need to understand and to know your word and your spirit. So help us, Lord, to not walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. And Lord, when that wants to rise up within us, help us to recognize it as quickly as possible and deal with it. Forgive us for the times when we haven't done that. Whenever we've allowed our mind or our actions to go against what your spirit is saying and doing. Your word teaches. So we give you thanks, Lord. We bless you, Lord, for insights that your word gives us to help us, to train us, and to teach us that we may walk as righteous men and women of God, that we may be men and women of the word and of the spirit. So we bless you and we give you thanks. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.